Oh, Father, what a good thing to gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ today, to be refreshed and to be renewed and to be encouraged, to be reminded of who you are and who we are in light of who you are. Father, we find it so easy for the words to flow across our lips that we love you, that we want to live for you, and yet we admit in our frailty and in our fleshliness that we are prone to failure. And so we would worship you now, not only with our voices in singing and humbling our hearts before you, but we would continue in the worship of you through the hearing of your word and then through the living out of your word in obedience. Father, move among us. May your Holy Spirit have a great freedom to convict to encourage, to exhort, to challenge us to biblical thinking, to living with a Christ-likeness in the midst of a difficult world. Father, we do look forward to those mansions in glory, but in the meantime, we want to be faithful people. and We want to be salt and we want to be light. And so now recharge us with your word, I pray. Humble our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I lived in the 1960s in Illinois in the uh, mid to late 70s in high school during, uh, in Michigan. And we had a lot of snow both in South Chicago and in Kalamazoo, Michigan area. I never saw snow like this, I don't think, in a five, six day period. But when I was a kid living in Illinois, we lived in the suburbs of South Chicago. And one of the things that my older brothers and brother and sisters would do, along with the neighbor kids, so you lived where homes were in rows and there was a sidewalk, we would play on the streets and play on the sidewalk in front of our house. And one of the things that was very popular was to jump rope and to do double dutch. Do you know what that is? I think since the uh, video games have taken over our children, they don't know how to jump rope or play outside as well as we used to, maybe. Um, of course, we used to have snow like this all the time. Did I say that? Walk in waist-deep snow, uphill both ways to school and back in minus 20. This is nothing compared to when I was a kid. But anyway, back to jumping rope. Um, I was little, and I didn't get to jump as much, and by the time we... I was older, we had moved to Michigan, and I was milking cows instead of jumping rope. But uh, my, my siblings would get the double dutch rope going, and that was where two jump ropes are going at the same time. And they would come in and out of there, and they would get their feet going. And they had a rhyme that I can remember sitting on the porch, watching them, saying along with them. And it went like this, and I'll use our names. Van and Janet sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes Janny with the baby carriage. Have you heard that one? There were all kinds of rhymes for double dutching and, and jumping rope. And I invite you to turn to Genesis 24 on this Valentine's Day as we encounter one of the classic relationship stories of the Bible. Yes, it's a love story even. And we're in Genesis 24. And if you've been keeping track, you know that we've skipped chapter 23. That's the death of Sarah. I have not forgotten it. 
and we will come back to it because soon we will be in chapter 25, which is the death of Abraham, and we will pick up both of those and we will um, consider those chapters at that time and the significance of the closing out of their lives. I thought it was appropriate for us to take a look at this love story, one of the great stories in the Bible of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, a wife for him. This passage that we turn to, though, that if we were to listen closely to the boys and girls in the context of this ancient story, yet true and relevant and accurately recorded for us by Moses as a record of the history of Israel, these boys and girls would say this as they double-dutched, if they did. They would say, Van and Janet sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes marriage, then comes love, then comes Janie with the baby carriage. I told Janet last night she was washing up some supper dishes about what I was preaching on and that my title was, First Comes Marriage, Then Comes Love. And she turned and looked at me and she went, (laughs) I didn't really know how to take that. (laughs) Kiss me quick and don't slobber? I don't know. It was something. So if you're really the super romantic kind, you might not like this message. If you're the kind of guy who goes to the store and shows your wife the Valentine card and says, this is the one I would have bought for you. This is your kind of message, okay? But if you're, you know, I don't know, you, you know, lots of roses, pajamagrams, whatever, and you're really into romance, you probably won't like this passage as much, and yet there is great application for relationships this Valentine's Day, as well as other spiritual and doctrinal lessons involved. This happens to be the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. This is anecdotally the longest account of one story sustained in the book of Genesis. And so there's a lot to read here. One reason for that is, is that it is told twice over in the passage. I'm going to try to abbreviate that as I read the story to us by skipping the part when the faithful servant begins to retell what we've just read. You'll see that in your Bible. I trust that you will discipline your mind to stay with the reading of the Word this morning. It will be an extended reading. There's absolutely nothing wrong with reading God's Word for an extended period of time in Sunday morning church, is there? In fact, I think it's most appropriate. And yet it is minimized, isn't it, in many of our churches And so to grasp the story and for you to wrap your mind around the context of what we're talking about this morning, I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word or discipline your ears to listen carefully as I read Genesis 24, beginning with verse 1. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief or oldest servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, 
but will go to my country and to my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country where you came from? Make sure, Abraham said, that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl... Please, let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. And then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. 
The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed of the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And so the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. And then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, men servants and maid servants and camels and donkeys. And my wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath. And then he went on to repeat exactly what had happened. Let's pick it up at verse 45. And he says, continuing his story to Rebekah's older brother Laban, Before I finished praying, verse 45, in my heart, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went to the spring. I asked her for a drink. She lowered her jar. She watered my camels. I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, Daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor. Then I put a ring in her nose and bracelets on her arm. I bowed down and I worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord God of my master Abraham who has led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Verse 49. Now if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. And then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the girl remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, Do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. And then they said, Let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Will you go with this man? And I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. And so she took her veil and covered herself. And then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah 
and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a remarkable story, huh? It's a long story, as I've referenced. What I'd like us to do with this text this morning is to address, first of all, the key characters in the story. That would include the camels. There are six sets of characters in this story as we encounter them in the story. Let's review them momentarily. And then, and there are a couple different ways you can go with this passage. There are some that would make uh, much ado over a spiritualizing of the passage, and they would say that this is a clear picture of the Holy Trinity, Abraham being the father, Isaac the son, representing Jesus or a type of Christ, which he is, and that the servant, this faithful servant, is a type of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and can draw various lessons. The Bible doesn't tell us that that's the meaning of this passage. And and so we'll just kind of let that be there for some devotional thoughts. It is interesting to gain some lesson as well from this passage on this faithful servant. In fact, it's a way to maybe have a little variety in your devotional life this week. Come back to this passage and take some time to read it again and think about it from the view of this faithful servant and how loyal he was to his master and how carefully he carried out his instruction and how he kept his oath. And go to Psalm 15, how it says there, what kind of a man of God keeps his oath even if it hurts and and just meditate and benefit from these passages. But in the context of Valentine's Day and, and the great day of relationships and love, and I also think pertinent to the needs of our community, our church, and our culture. I want to make some application on this passage, out of this passage, having to do with actually guarding ourselves and thinking through what it means to be involved in a godly relationship. And so we will apply this passage in a more practical way by asking ourselves seven questions when seeking a godly mate. And I hope that it will challenge, particularly you young people who are in the audience today. There will be lessons and life application for all of us. It's God's Word. And isn't it remarkable how the Lord takes His Word and through His Holy Spirit, applies it to us at different levels and different ways and according to the needs that we have. I would encourage young people particularly to write these points, these questions down. Keep them in your Bible and think about this. Very few things are more important than the selection of a spouse. And I long for Fellowship Bible Church to be characterized by young people who will grow up and be committed to finding God's will only for their lives and not compromising God's will. Being committed to the selection of a godly spouse in a Christ-centered marriage. Well, let's take a look at this passage a little bit and just... Make sure we understand what's happening here a little bit. We've already referenced that in chapter 23, Sarah has passed away. Sarah has died and Abraham has grieved and some time has gone by. Perhaps two or three years has gone by. Abraham, it says, is now old and well advanced in years. The first character that we encounter in our story is, number one, 
I title him Old Abraham. Old Abraham. Abraham doesn't know it, of course, but he's going to live about 30 or 35 more years. He's going to remarry. He's going to have a bunch more kids. He's even going to have some concubines. But really, we're not going to hear any more of Abraham after this. The beginning of chapter 25, he's going to pass away. We'll deal with that soon enough. Old Abraham knows something, though, doesn't he? He doesn't know how long he's going to live, but he knows that pretty soon he's going to die. And Abraham knows that God has made an oath to him. And Abraham knows that he is in a covenantal relationship with God, and that is that out of him would come a son. That son, Abraham knows, is Isaac. And that out of Isaac, then, his son of promise would come a nation of people, too numerous to count, through whom God would bless the world and bless all people everywhere. Ultimately, out of this lineage would come none other than our own Lord Jesus Christ. All those who bless him will be blessed. And we've talked about that. And so Abraham knows something by inference. He knows that the next most important decision in his life is that Isaac needs a wife. He knows that if this, if this promise, this oath to be fulfilled through Isaac will take place, that Isaac has to have children. And so he is concerned in his old age that he be involved in the selection of the right mate for Isaac. In essence, God is sovereign over the affairs of men, but in essence, one wrong decision here messes up the whole thing. And of course, we know that God takes and turns and even the failures and sinfulnesses of man, and there will be numerous slip-ups and failures in the years ahead and the genealogy following. God just takes and turns it and uses it, but this is of great concern to old Abraham. The next person that we encounter almost immediately in verse 2 is who I call, number 2, the faithful servant. Abraham has been blessed. He's old. He calls his chief servant. We don't know the name of this person. Some people suggest that he's Eleazar. We've met him before. The one through whom Abraham suggested to God that God could bless him through Eleazar, his servant, which was a cultural ramification to a childless father who could then take one of his servants and bless his inheritance through him. That didn't happen, but it is actually possible, nobody knows, but it is possible that Eleazar even knew that, that that was a possibility. Then God blessed Abraham and Sarah with the child of promise, and that Eleazar himself, this faithful man who loved his master and evidently loved the Lord as much as his master, was actually the one who then goes with this most important um, responsibility upon him, and that is to find the proper wife for Isaac the son of promise. I've already referenced that this faithful servant, he's nameless, but he's worth our attention, is a great model of loyalty, humility, servanthood, has a great dependence on God and is a, a man of prayer. The story moves on and there is kind of an interesting aspect to the story at this point. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Abraham calls this faithful servant to him. And you have this unusual 
oath exchange where Abraham wants his servant to swear to an oath and in so doing, he has him put his hand under his thigh. That was, most Bible students believe, a cultural uh, thing. We're going to see it again in Genesis chapter 47 that when two people made a covenant or a very important decision was made between two men that the one man would slip his hand underneath the covering of the other man and literally hold his genitalia area while they made this oath looking at each other in the eye. And you say, whoa, I'd rather use a pen and a piece of paper. (laughs) And I agree. And what they would do, though, and nobody really knows exactly why they did that, but it is... I found that it was pretty much agreed upon across the board that uh, from Bible students that, that this was a euphemism for that. This hand under the thigh is a euphemism for that. If you stop and think about it, though, there is uh, an aspect to it that, that is logical, and that is that if you're doing this, you're paying close attention to each other. All right? And there's no mistake going on here. And you know that you're doing this for a reason. And you will never forget that moment. And it's very, very serious. And some have suggested, and I think it makes sense, that the idea would be that the person who's receiving the oath knows that his master is most serious about this. Some tie it to the idea of circumcision and being of the people of promise. But I think this kind of oath was in agreement. This activity was carried out between people who were outside of the children of promise The idea might be that the one receiving the oath is in so touching this personal part of the body saying, may I be childless if I do not carry out this oath. That's suggested and it makes sense to me, although I don't know if that's totally true. We don't know and it doesn't really matter. All we know is that they made an oath. This is a very important oath and that Abraham trusted this guy with this most important detail. Excuse me, the air is dry this morning. The next person we encounter, though, is in our story is beautiful Rebecca, number three. We encounter beautiful Rebecca through the eyes of this faithful servant. And you have to stop and think for a minute what an incredible moment this is. He makes an oath. By the way, let's remind ourselves from the story that there are two parts to the oath that the servant had to make with Abraham. Two things that were of concern to Abraham, both very important. Number one, do not let my son take a wife from anybody who's outside of our people. He is not to take a wife from the Canaanites. (coughs) And he is not to leave this country. This is a way where Abraham is, though by faith, though he knows he will not see this land possessed, as God promised it, that he doesn't want his son of promise to leave the promised land. This is the land we are to possess. Do not let this boy go out of here, find a wife, and settle down somewhere outside of the will of God. And so those two things concerned Abraham. Do not let him marry a pagan. Do not let him move out of the promised land. We can't let that happen. And so this faithful servant makes this commitment and oath to that, and off he goes. It was about a 500-mile trek. He takes ten camels, loaded with loot, has some servants with him. What do you think is going through his mind? Let's say he cover 50 50 miles a day. I don't know how long, I don't know what you can do with a camel in this kind of terrain. I have no idea. I'm sure you can get all kinds of answers. But I think 50 miles a day sounds good. 
time you light a fire and broil lunch and take a little siesta and get back on your camel. Ten days en route. You're like, wow, this is a big task. It's a big task. One of the things we might do right now is glance over at the end of chapter 22 because there's a little section of verses there that we omitted when we wrapped up chapter 22. Beginning with verse 20, look what it says. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother, 22-20. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. I like these two first two born. Uz and Buzz. Alright, so I'm for like any twin boys that come along, Uz and Buzz. Alright? Uz and Buzz and his brother Cuz and Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. If you want proper pronunciation, see Willem afterwards. And Bethuel, I got Uz and Buzz right, though I'm pretty sure. Maybe it's ooze and booze. I don't know. <laughs> Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Now notice here. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was also Aruma, also had sons. Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mekah. Somewhere along the line, Abraham had received word of this. And that his brother had grandchildren and one of them was evidently a girl. He knows what's going on enough that he gives direction to this faithful servant because we see um, up in verse 10 that this servant set out for Aram Neharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. It's named after Abraham's brother. And so you have a location, a destination, and he goes and there is the spring, there's the well, and he arrives and evidently he figured out this much. On his long trek, 10 days on his camel or whatever, he's thinking this thing through, he's praying about it, he's saying, okay, how am I going to find which girl it is when I get to this area? I know what I'll do, I'll go where the girls go. And in this culture, the girls went after the water. Certain times of the day, the girls would come out in preparation for chores and evening activities and even watering stock. The women did that. The young ladies did that. And so here he is, and he needs a drink for his camels anyway, and that's the fourth set of characters that we have. We meet Rebecca, but then there's these thirsty camels, number four, thirsty camels, that are part of the story because here he is, and he prays, and he prays, in verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one. He throws out a fleece. You ever heard that expression? It comes from another Old Testament story coming up in the book of Judges where a guy named Gideon had an issue going on with the Lord and he was encountering. He said, okay, Lord, if you really want me to do this, he took a piece of sheepskin fleece, throws it out on the ground and he prays to God and he says, if this is your will, make all the dew be on the grass, but my fleece dry. 
He wakes up the next morning and all the dew is on the grass, but the fleece is dry. So he says, hmm, maybe that was just kind of a fluky thing. And so he says to the Lord, if this is really your will, let's do the opposite. Make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And so the next morning he wakes up and he goes out and sure enough, and God gave him indication that that was his will. We call it putting out a fleece. That's basically considered a lack of faith. It's not recommended. You know, it's kind of like, okay, Lord, if you want me to marry this girl, let a Ford F-150 four-wheel drive with tinted glass drive by next, and then I'll know this is the girl. You know, it's like, that's not what we do. It's like, Lord, if you want me to, you know, if you want me to buy this property, Lord, make sure there's green grass on it. And you go, and then there's, see, we can manipulate it. It's, it, it's out of control. It's generally a, a lack of confidence that the Lord is going to make his will known to you. But this servant kind of does that. And what's so significant about it is that the average camel drinks 25 gallons of water. And it says that his camels were, were given all they wanted to drink. It is possible that Rebecca had to carry up, probably steps down to the spring, fill this pitcher jug that she used, bucket, and carry it four, maybe four gallons at a time, upwards of 250 gallons of water. What's interesting too, and some of you who maybe be a little bit more mature and you've been praying for a godly spouse, say, Pastor Van, I don't need this message. I've been praying and praying and praying. And and God's not moving in my life. Listen, I cannot explain the will of God for you, nor can I explain God and His sovereign withholding of our desires at times and seasons in our lives. I do know that He loves you and I know that He is a faithful God. But this faithful servant prays, and here's the rub that you won't like. It says, as soon as he was done praying, he looks up and here's this girl. So he says, all right, I'm going to try it. Hey, I'm really thirsty. Oh, sure, here's a drink. And may I water your camels? It's like phenomenal answer to prayer. It says here about Rebecca that she was beautiful to look at. She was a virgin. That part of the verse meaning less about her chastity and more about her age. She was a young maiden eligible for marriage. The next phrase would speak to the chastity part. Moses communicating to the children of Israel that this was a pure girl, a girl who had never lain with a man, that her offspring came from Isaac. She went down and demonstrated her character What a girl she must have been. She's a remarkable young lady, hospitable, able to engage with these male strangers there. Whether in naivety or in self-confidence, we don't know, but she did not cross any inappropriate lines. She provides this drink and then she provides this water. Well, we get to hurry along and you know the rest of the story from reading it. Let's just remind ourselves so... In verse 21, it says that he sat there and watched her water in those camels. And he's thinking, did God answer my prayer or did God not answer my prayer? And he's just watching this thing. And she waters all the camels. And then he says, to take it one step further, why don't you let me come to your house? Can I come to your house? Are you able to sustain my animals and feed us? He had his staff with him. She says, yes, come. He gives her jewelry. By then he's convinced, this is the one. This is God's answer to prayer. Puts a ring in her nose. The Hebrew word is for her nose there. The King James translated it probably inappropriately. Put jewelry on her. 
goes home and we meet then the next character in the story. Number five, Brother Laban. We've had old Abraham, faithful servant, beautiful Rebecca, thirsty camels. Now, Brother Laban. You'll know about Laban, some of you who've been around Sunday school, because Isaac and Rebekah are going to have two boys, remember? They're coming up in our story, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is going to end up back here working for Uncle Laban, and Laban is going to schnooker him into marrying Leah, his oldest daughter, when he loves Rachel. I was told that I said Rachel a lot in the early service for Rebekah, so... I'm trying not to do that. Laban was somewhat of a shyster and evidently even inferred in this passage here is that when he saw the jewelry and he saw all the loot on the camels, he was like, yeah, you guys come spend the night at our house. Well, they figure the whole thing out and then in almost a Christian wedding-like manner, when things speed up rapidly and this faithful servant gets approval from her brother Laban, evidently her father was either ill or old, then Laban gives approval and the family gives approval to the relationship. They want to take her immediately the next morning and return. And they say, wait, give us 10 days. And then they call Rachel. And this is where it's almost in a Christian-like wedding. Did you see that in, in verse 57 and 58? So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? And she says, I will. You give this woman to be married. I do. And then you get up on the platform. Will you love, cherish, and so forth? I will. And so immediately, they're only there one night. The next morning, off they go back. And then we meet number six, waiting Isaac. And what a moment it must have been. Hebrew word is difficult to translate, but it's translated in the NIV that he was meditating. He had walked out into the field. Some uncertainty exactly what it meant when he went out into the field there. NIV chose to translate it meditating. He was evidently taking a walk. He was out in his fields and he looks up and he sees the camels. What a remarkable moment. He knew what was going on. By the way, did I tell you that in... Chapter 25, verse 20, it says that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. This guy is a mature man. He is an eligible bachelor and he's waiting for a wife. If you compare this with other genealogies in the text that are given to us in earlier chapters from this historical time frame, it would appear that he's at least 10 years late in taking a wife all part of God's plan and sovereign design for his life. Generally, by 30, 32, those men were taking wives. Rebecca, no doubt, was much younger. A young maiden, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old in that range, 15. He sees the camels. And what's going on? There they come. Here is a sort of a picture. Some build a case of Christ receiving his bride the church, I'm not so sure that that's what's represented here. It doesn't say that. And then Rebecca, evidently her heart began to pound. She began to look. She says to the faithful servant, Who's that man? Oh, that's my master's son. Oh, she immediately takes her veil and covers herself appropriately, not wanting in any way to be inappropriate to present herself in any come-on way. 
And then it says that the servant told Isaac all he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah. He married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. First comes marriage, then comes love. There it is, isn't it? Well, what a remarkable story. There's a few more details. You can study them on your own. Let's draw some practical application, especially young people, and maybe those of you who have children coming up through your home. I think there's some really important principles here. I've listed this underneath the title, Seven Guiding Questions When Seeking a Godly Mate. Seven Guiding Questions When Seeking a Godly Mate. Oh, listen, there's so much confusion and sin represented in this area in our culture. It has made inroads into the church. Our Christian young people struggle in relationships as much or more than anyone else. Young people, I hope you will listen carefully for the next 10 minutes or so. Take this in carefully. I think it can be very helpful to you if you will commit yourself to the Word of God. First of all, the first question that I get out of this, a question I need to ask myself in seeking a godly mate from this passage would be, number one, am I listening to wise counsel? Am I listening to wise counsel, namely my parents? Did you notice at the beginning of the story that Abraham controlled every aspect of this and that his 40-year-old son is patiently waiting on his father's judgment? And you say, that's far enough, Pastor Van. I'm not going to do that. I know that culturally this won't work right now, but I would challenge you that if your mother and your father look at you and they caution you and they warn you and your father says you should not do this and you do it, you will remove yourself from underneath the umbrella of God's blessing. The Word of God says clearly in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1-4 through 4, that you cannot walk outside of the blessing of your father and receive the blessing of God. It cannot be done. And people wander around wondering why God's not blessing their relationship when they have walked in direct disobedience to their parents, to their pastor, to wise counsel, and they don't know why God's blessing them. And all I have to say is, dumb, 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 dumb. How can you get God's blessing when you walk outside of God's will? It doesn't happen. And I'm going to tell you something. When you're in love, it's almost too late. First of all, am I listening to wise counsel? It would be interesting. I was tempted to do it, but it would, we don't have time, and I decided not to preach another message on it. It would be interesting to do a study in comparison to Isaac and his response to his father and Samson and his response to his father and how the two ended up. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, we're going to see later, did not have a perfect marriage. But it was not the chaos and the pain and the suffering that Samson brought on himself going to his father. And when his father questions him, why do you have to choose a daughter of the Philistines to marry as a wife? And he just says, go and get her for me. I want her. I like her. And the father capitulates. Shame on him. And you may have a lot of racket going on in your house, but fathers, it's our job to protect our daughters. And it's not wrong to kick a guy off your front porch and send him home. Number two, 
I think out of this passage is a direct application. Number one, am I I listening to my father? Am I listening to wise counsel? Abraham oversaw this whole thing. Secondly, where am I looking? Where am I looking for a godly mate? I'm going to give you a really, a really, really insightful formula. If you are looking where there are no godly people, you will not marry a godly wife. You with me? Listen, you don't meet godly people at bars. All right? You don't meet godly people where where godly people don't hang out. You've got to find a place where there's godly people. That's not always easy. You can't manipulate the will of God. And I would say at this point as well, I do not believe in evangelistic dating. I am, in fact, very much opposed to it. You don't encounter a relationship so that you can lead that person to Christ if it's opposite gender. All right? You don't do that. Our hearts deceive us. We're too sensitive in this area. The man-woman dynamic is too powerful. It's too overwhelming. You will fall in love before you lead them to Christ. And then where will you be? You can point at different case studies, but I'm telling you, just avoid it. You don't do that. Where am I looking? Number three, am I committed to an equal yoke relationship? Will you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1? Deuteronomy chapter 7, quickly, please. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is going to be written later, but this is part of God's standard for His people. Notice what He says here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Number three, am I committed to an equal yoke relationship? We will explain that a little bit more, but write it down word for word. An equal yoke, and you can put quotes around equal yoke relationship. Verse seven, chapter 7 of Deuteronomy says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, says the Lord. If you want a case study on this, write down 2 Kings, write down 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 1 through 8. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, and look at the life of Solomon and what his ungodly wives did to him. But turn with me to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to show you this principle spelled out for the church. All right, clearly God gave this instruction to Israel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, excuse me, we have for us direct instruction concerning this. Remember the question we're asking ourselves in seeking a godly spouse is, am I committed to an equal yoke relationship? Here it is. 2 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Listen, if you can date or court a non-believing person and you are a Christian, there is something wrong with your Christianity. You get this passage? The worldview, the spiritual heart, the mindset process of a believer in the Lord Christ is so different than a non-believer that the Apostle Paul says, what do you even have in common? And so if you're not committed to to an equal yoke relationship, you will create for yourself an entire dynamic that is outside the will of God. Because I will tell you something. The daughters of Canaan are beautiful. And they are nice. And the boys of Canaan can sweet talk well. But a Christian has to be committed first and foremost to what? To the word of God and the obedience of the word of God, whether it feels so right that it can't be wrong. That's utter nonsense. You cannot trust your feelings in a relationship of love between guys and girls. You cannot, you have to trust your convictions that are made outside of the relationship because once you're in the relationship, your feelings will misguide you. It's too powerful. Doesn't matter if you're 17, 27, or 77. The dynamic of the man and the woman is is a powerful thing that God has programmed in us. Am I listening to wise counsel? Where am I looking? Am I doing evangelistic dating foolishly? Am I committed to an equal yoke relationship? That is, I will only date, and can I add a word, committed Christians. Don't date or seek out as a spouse just a Christian. They have to be a committed Christian, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I use the word dating because that's what we understand in our culture. Listen to me. My wife always said this often. She said, Pastor Hanchu used to say, every date is a potential mate. Every date is a potential mate. You don't go out with anyone who isn't qualified to be your wife. There is absolutely no reason to go out and get involved in a one-on-one relationship with somebody if they are not qualified to be your spouse. You're setting yourself up for failure. Fourthly, we notice that this faithful servant prayed and God answered his prayer. And this one needs a little less challenge probably, and it is simply the question I ask myself is, in seeking a godly spouse, am I praying with expectation? Am I praying with expectation? You know that this guy prayed, and it's an amazing prayer as we noted in chapter 24 of Genesis O God of my master Abraham, give me success today. Okay, some of you who are more mature and have been praying for a spouse, add today to your prayer. I don't think it's magic, but that's what this guy did. I cannot explain unanswered prayer completely. Oh, the Lord uses it in so many ways. But I don't think it's wrong to start praying. Lord, will you bring in my life today a godly spouse? could happen. You could have qualified and say, 
or as soon as it is your will. (laughs) Am I praying with expectation number five? This is very serious. Am I preserving myself for my mate physically? Am I preserving myself for my mate physically? Can I say something? And write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Here's what it says there in the NIV. It's translated, It is God's will that you abstain. It is God's will. You want to know God's will for your life? He has spoken directly to this point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, and go through verse 8, and that you are to control your bodies, not in passionate lust, like the heathen do. There is a contrast between the believing one in Christ and the heathen. But I would say that in this area, we are on a losing course. The statistics are showing that in the church that statistically those marrying from Christian homes, from Christian churches, even Bible-believing churches, that statistically those marrying who have been engaged in premarital sex is almost statistically equal to those outside of the church. What's wrong with that picture? I'll tell you something. If you want to complicate a relationship... If you want to fuzz over your thinking in such a way that you will not have clarity, you will not have an ability to make wise choices, you will cloud your judgment, you will shut off the ability to hear from God, engage yourself in sexual activity with the one that you're seeing or dating or courting. You compromise in the area of the physical and you take yourself out of the ability to engage in objective Understanding of God's will for that relationship. It is too powerful. It is too overwhelming. This is an argument for quick marriage, by the way, for some parents. You need to be wise. Sometimes it's God's will for our children to marry young, just like it's, our, it's God's will for some to wait. 1 Corinthians 7 says clearly that it is better to marry than to burn. And when... Th- When God brings two people together at the right time, at the right place, and it's His will, they ought to not have a long engagement. They ought to be blessed and be married and have the support of their family and their church. But discerning people need to affirm that. I've told you this story many times, but it's a good story and it's the only one I know like it. So I'll tell it again. I was in my friend Charles Bethel's office at Appalachian Bible College and his son Matthew had just gotten married and they had just gotten the photo album back a few, maybe a couple months after the wedding. He was showing me in his office, beaming with, proud, with pride at his oldest son's wedding album and we were thumbing through it and we stopped on the picture of the kiss during the wedding ceremony and Chuck's eyes welled up with tears and he said, he said I'll tell you something, I didn't know it at the time but that's the first time Matthew ever kissed her, Melanie. I'll tell you something. That takes discipline as a young man, but that is what I would encourage young people. Commit yourself to a physical, free relationship until you're married. You say, Pastor Van, Pastor Van, holding hands doesn't matter. Well, then don't do it. 
right? If it's not a big deal, don't do it. Because you know it does matter. And man, when skin touches skin, there ain't nothing like that. Pastor Van, a little kissy-wissy, that doesn't hurt anything. I don't know how you're wired up, but I think it matters a lot. And if it doesn't matter, don't do it. Because, listen, you you start the engine and get in the car and put it in drive and you got nowhere else to go. And you're much better off to just stand back, commit yourself to this relationship in purity. Maybe you've gone too far already. You need to, before the Lord, back up and create a new celibacy, create a new purity before the Lord. You will cloud your judgment so much with that. It is God's will, First Thessalonians 4. Am I preserving myself for my mate? Number six, do I have anyone guarding my selection? We already talked about wise counsel, number one, but what I mean on this one, I think this is an important point. Number six, do I have anyone guarding my selection? I get this from verse 21 of chapter 24. Well, this faithful servant is standing there and he is engaged in this fleece prayer. It's already taken place. And Rebecca is going up and down, watering his camels. And it says in verse 21 that he is watching her to discern if this is God's will. And what you have at that moment is you have a man, a third party, unrelated to Abraham, unrelated to Isaac in a sense, unrelated to Rebecca, and he's the one that's going to say thumbs up or thumbs down right then. He's going to say, nope, this isn't the one. Or he's going to say, this is the one. As you seek a godly spouse, young people or old people who, if you lose a spouse and you end up in a relationship again, will you get somebody in your world that you trust who when your head is in the clouds and when you're clouded with your judgment and they look at you and they say, I'm going to tell you something, dude, this is not the one. Then you drop them like a hot potato. Because you need to listen to that kind of a person. I remember standing in the first floor basement hallway of McCarroll Hall at Appalachian Bible College with my good friend Greg Alderman, who's now the pastor at Central Chapel out in Jaredstown. Greg and I were very close friends. And we vowed to one another that if we saw the other guy doing something stupid we would force him out of it, even if it meant hitting with our fists. That's kind of a guy thing. And it said something like, I will beat you down. And for me to Greg, I'd have had to hit him from behind with a stick. (laughs) But I'd have done it. Do you have that kind of person in your world that you trust knows you and loves you so much that if they see you making a mistake or getting out on thin ice, that if they speak to you, you will drop your head and you'll say, okay, man, I don't feel it, I don't see it, I don't understand it, but I'm going to believe you. You better have somebody like that in your world. Finally, number six, am I waiting with a proper attitude of productivity? Am I waiting with a proper attitude of productivity? Do you notice that Rebecca is going about her routine. She's a positive person. She's productive. She's there. She's positive. Can I tell you, young adult, single, that there is nothing more unattractive than throwing yourself at somebody in desperation and acting like you can't live if living isn't without you. 
All right? Just kind of hits you once in a while. Don't be that kind of person. You don't need that other person to live a productive, positive life. You are who you are. You don't need 200 pounds of dead weight around you. All right? Don't have them... Don't make yourself... Don't, that is so unattractive. You be the person God wants you to be. And you go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. And Lord, I'm going to trust you and you will accomplish these things in my life. Let's bow in prayer. Father, these are not easy circumstances in which we can find ourselves and and we know that you've said in your word clearly that he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from you. It is your design and your idea for a man and a woman to come together in relationship. Thank you for this remarkable story of Isaac and Rebecca and how you carry out your promises and fulfill your covenants, how you are sovereign over the affairs of mankind. Lord, would you help us to humble our hearts today that we would indeed ask ourselves honest questions and give honest answers, that we would be a pure church, that we would be a people called out, that we would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus that we would trust you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.